you've got a Bible, please turn to Galatians chapter 4, or if you want to follow along with the words as they are uh, printed there in the worship folder. As we uh, look at the question of how did God make preparation for the coming of Christ. Many, many years ago, about 30 years ago, I think, uh, I heard a, a sermon by Charles Stanley that stuck in my mind as he pondered that question. And then later I heard a sermon by David Nicholas at Spanish River in Boca Raton, Florida. And he, he uh, approached the same question. And uh, so I took the ideas that I heard from those various sermons that were very spread out over many years and I, I put them together today in how God made preparation in the Roman world for the coming of his son and then the Lord willing next week on how God made preparation in the Jewish world for the coming of his son. But Paul writes to the Galatians and in these verses, I have one contact <laughs> and I have to give it a moment to focus. <laughs> Beginning in verse four, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. What type of preparation did God make for the coming of his son? When it says here that in the fullness of time, God did this, most people know about Mary and Joseph and so forth, but what was happening in the world around leading up to that time, leading up to his birth? And so let's focus for just a few moments on the preparation that God made within the Roman world and then next week in the Jewish nation. Today is December the 12th. And uh, why do we call this month December? Because decem means what? Tenth. So what's the tenth doing on the twelfth month? Well, let me explain. The ancient Roman calendar was set up before 713 B.C., and the calendar started with March. And it started with March because the 60 days prior to March were so bleak that they would not give that season of uh, the year a name. And, and so March was the beginning and it was named after Mars and then April named after the goddess Aprilis and then May was named after the goddess of fertility and then June after Juno, the patron goddess of marriage. And that's why we have so many weddings in June. And then they ran out of names, so they named the month after June Quintilis, which means fifth, and then next after that was Sextilis, which is sixth, September, seventh, October is eighth, Octo is eighth, and then Novum is ninth, and then December, Decem, means tenth. But that's what the calendar was before 713 B.C. But many centuries later, uh, a king came along named Numa Pompilius. And he came up with a new calendar that had 355 days in it. And he decided to call the first period January after Janus, the god of the doorway, the door that opens the new period. And then the next period of time had a festival of purification in it and the word for purification is Februum, and so February. So that's how we got all those names. 
Now, having 355 days in the calendar didn't really work. And so in 46 BC, Julius Caesar decided to make the calendar more accurate. And he came up with a calendar that had 365.25 days in it. And that's called the Julian calendar. As you know, Julius Caesar was a Roman and he wanted to rule the empire, entire empire. He did not like the idea of a republic and he wanted to be king, so to speak. And he started a civil war and he won, and afterwards he declared himself the dictator in perpetuity. And he would be the monarch, he would be the king, he would be the emperor over all of Rome and all of its territories. Now this was in 49 BC, but just in about five years later, something happened to Julius Caesar. What happened? Well, he was assassinated, um, murdered by some of his own senators, led by Cassius and Brutus. They did not want a dictatorship, they wanted a republic. And they thought that by killing Julius Caesar that would end all of that, but then they could take over and have, have a republic with, with senators uh, chosen by the people. But there was a problem, and that was that Julius Caesar had written a will. And in his will, he had left everything not to Mark Anthony, who was expecting that he would receive everything, but he had left everything to an, an adopted nephew uh, who received all of the empire. And his name was Gaius Julius Caesar Octavi Octavianus. Octavian. Now that remember that, this, this guy's going to play a very, very important part. Well, Cassius and Brutus did not take kindly to what had been decided at the reading of this will, so they get an army and they battle it out with Mark Anthony and Octavian. They're, they have their army and then Cassius and Brutus have another army and there's this huge battle in the, near the city of Philippi. And Cassius and Brutus are, are killed in that battle and Mark Anthony and Octavian win. Now when it's over, Octavian, who is only 20 years old, he, he goes back to Rome where he's going to rule, but Mark Anthony goes down to Alexandria, Egypt. And why did he go there? Cleopatra, I see all of you mouthing, boy, y'all know your history right there, especially at that point. He's madly in love with Cleopatra. And Cleopatra had been married to Julius Caesar and they had had a son together. But now that Julius is dead, uh, he goes down there, down to Alexandria, and he marries Cleopatra, and he declares her to be the queen of kings and her son by Julius Caesar to be the king of kings. And in the years which follow, Mark Anthony and Cleopatra, they have three children together, and he named them as rulers of half of the Roman Empire. Well, when Octavian hears that, he is not happy at all because he's the ruler, in his mind, of the entire Roman Empire. So he brings an army, and Mark Anthony gets an army together, and they have this huge battle, probably one of the most important battles in the history of the world, and it occurred in 31 BC, and it was the Battle of Actium. To give you an idea of the large scale of this battle, Mark Anthony has 60,000 ships, 400, I'm sorry, 60,000 troops and 480 ships. 60,000 ships, that would have filled up the ocean, wouldn't it? Octavian has 80,000 troops 
and he has 400 ships, and they each had 12,000 horsemen. Well, there's this massive battle, and it culminates with the naval battle. It culminates in the Ionian Sea, which was to the uh, west of Italy. And Mark Anthony is losing, and Cleopatra sees that, and so she hurries and leaves to go back to Alexandria, and she takes with her 60 ships. The battle is lost. Mark Anthony returns to Egypt, and he gets real down because Octavian has won. And he knows, Octavian knows that he cannot allow Mark and Anthony to live, and so he follows him back to Alexandria with his army. And there's a battle there, and Octavian and his, his army win that battle. And Mark Anthony hears that he gets word that Cleopatra is dead, and so he takes a knife and he tries to kill himself. And he mortally wounds himself. Um, and then somebody finds him and tells him, oh, she's not dead. <laughs> irony of irony. So they drag his body into where she is, the room where she is, and he dies in her arms. Well, Cleopatra, in about roughly four weeks later, she knows that Octavian is going to come and take her back to Rome and humiliate her, and so she's not going to have anything to do with that. So she calls her attendants, and they bring a fruit basket with poisonous snakes in it. She takes one of those and puts it to her breast, and, and then she dies. So Mark Anthony and Cleopatra now are off the scene. Octavian goes back to Rome. Uh, it's 30 B.C., and he is the supreme ruler. He is the emperor of the Roman Empire. It's very interesting, this is kind of a side note, that in, that in 8 B.C., Octavian had the Roman Senate change the name of the month that was Quintilus to July to honor Julius Caesar. And since he was the supreme ruler, the August Caesar, he had them name the month August after his own honor. Well, that's another point. So that's how we got our calendar, our basic calendar that later was changed by Pope Gregory the Great, uh, the 13th, but anyway. What does this have to do with the birth of Jesus? You may be wondering that question. Trust me, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> I think uh, God had spoken through one of his prophets in 700 B.C., the prophet Micah, and he had spoken through Micah and said where the Messiah would be born. He said that he would be born in this town called Bethlehem. In Micah 5.2 it says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. You try that on for size. How about today? Think 700 years in the future where one of your ancestors, the precise town where they will be born. That's what God did uh, more than 700 years before the birth actually took place. And so God had set forth this prophecy about the Messiah, the anointed through Micah, and he had told the people of Israel that the Messiah would come and would be a ruler. And he told them that 700 years before it happened. And so how would God bring this about? Well, he brought it about through elevating this person, this adopted nephew of Julius Caesar named Octavian. And we wonder, can God do that? Does God raise up people into leadership like that? Well, hear what Daniel 4 says. The Most High rules the kingdom of men 
and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. And so God raises up Octavian and we wonder why. And because he had set this decree hundreds of years before that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. But there was a problem. Joseph and Mary didn't live in Bethlehem. They lived 70 miles to the north of Bethlehem. And there was no reason they would leave their hometown where their families were and where Joseph's carpentry business were. There was no reason for them to leave and travel south 70 miles to this little town. And yet Luke tells us a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. So here's Octavian and he wants to have a census. He needs to know who and how many and where. Where does everybody live? Because that was the basis of their taxation. That was how they conscripted people into the army. And he decides to do that. Luke 2 says, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. By the way, when the Bible says he went up, he was headed south, but it was higher in elevation, so it says he went up. So God had said 750 years before that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, and he elevates this man, Octavian, so that he would send forth this decree, and Joseph takes Mary, and they set out, and they go to Bethlehem. This distance of about 70 miles would have taken about a week. Why has God done all this? Well, that's where Galatians 4 comes in. He tells us in verse 5, Paul tells us, he's done this to redeem us, to redeem us, to buy back. Now, you have to understand, the Roman Empire at that time in history was probably, the population was more than 60% slaves through warfare and so forth, and these other people from other nations that they had conquered. They're slaves, and so to hear the word redeem in their language, they knew exactly what it meant. It meant to be purchased out of slavery. Now, a person, a person in those days, a slave, if they had an income, could save up enough money and purchase their own freedom. Or someone else could come along and purchase it for them. Well, who has purchased it for us? Well, the Father has through the blood of his Son. He redeems us. God says that we are all slaves. We're slaves either to sin or we're slaves to him. And so he sent Christ to buy us out of slavery. How does he do that? Well, we call it the bad news, good news. It's summarized in the Bible. God created our first four parents, Adam and Eve, ages ago. And they had not only the five senses we have, they could see and taste and smell and hear and so forth, but they also had a an, an extra dimension in their life. They had a sixth sense. They had a spiritual sense where they literally walked and talked with God in this perfect environment that God had created for them. And God gave them one prohibition, and yet they violated that and they broke that. They committed a crime against God, and God said that the punishment for that would be death. And so they died, not physically, they died many, many years later physically, but they died at that instant spiritually. That perfect relationship with God now was broken. And you and I are born into this world, it says spiritually dead. We are born into this world where they ended up, you might say. And yet God was also merciful and in his love and mercy, he promised even as he punished them, even as he exiled them from the garden, he promised to send a redeemer who would make them right with him. 
And that was Jesus. So Jesus came, he was born of a virgin, he never sinned, he never violated God's law. He was perfect in every respect. And then he allowed himself to be, to go through a mock trial, to be uh, crucified, and, and on the cross, God took my sin and he placed them on him. And in doing so, Jesus became the sin bearer for me. And then he died. Three days later, he was physically, bodily raised from the grave. The last command he gave to his disciples was they were to go into all the world, to all nations, and make disciples and tell people what God had done. And so the point is whether you and I have received that new life in Christ, whether we have been redeemed simply by putting our trust in the work of Christ. And you know what he says here? He ends the verses where he says that once that happens, we can call him Abba, Father. We're no longer a slave, but now we are a child. We are a son or daughter of God. And so that, that is what the coming of Christ is all about. So I'll leave you with this question. Have you been redeemed? And if you have, you are no longer a slave, but you are a child of God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for how you work through history, even as you work in our lives now to bring about your will and so that we could be redeemed, purchased by you through the blood of Christ. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.